Hello and welcome to the Rice Historical Review podcast. I am Josval Varenga, co-director of podcasting, joined with fellow directors Melissa Carmona and Regina Valache. Today we have the pleasure of speaking with Frederick Drummond about his research efforts surrounding his senior history thesis. Frederick is a senior history major from Duncan College. With an interest in science and physics, Frederick is currently writing an honors thesis on nuclear weapons policy during the Cold War, focusing for the most part on the Eisenhower and Kennedy administrations. Frederick is also pursuing a minor in business as well as the certificate in civic leadership. Frederick, how are you doing today? I'm doing just fine. Thank you for having me on the podcast. Thank you so much for being here. We love to get a variety of the people in our Rice History Department. So we're super excited to hear about your thesis. So with that, can you tell us a little bit more about the topic of your history senior thesis and what you're studying? Certainly. So my history thesis covers the early days of the Cold War and how nuclear policy was determined within that time frame of the Eisenhower and Kennedy administrations. I examined the role of scientists in determining policy, the type of advice they produced on behalf of the political administration, and in addition to that, identifying which parts of this advice was listened to and which parts were ignored for various reasons by politicians and the military. So as we understand it, your history senior thesis also focuses on uh, MAD, so mutually assured destruction. So can you unpack some of the historical context surrounding that? Certainly. So this was right after World War II had finished, and the pressing question on the minds of many members of the military was, what was the threat to the United States now? And the conclusion they came to was that the threat is now the communism inherent in the USSR, as well as the nuclear weapons they had at their disposal. And so the question became, how do we address this threat? And the solution was MAD, Mutually Assured Destruction, which essentially says that, all right, both sides have nuclear weapons and neither side can utilize those weapons without the risk of destroying themselves when the other nation retaliates. So the whole point of MAD is to eliminate the possibility of nuclear warfare by making nuclear warfare so bad that neither side will consider the possibility. Certainly a very unique way of thinking about foreign policy. I actually have a quick follow-up question. So I think you said that you had like an interest in like science and physics and stuff. Does that play any, like, does that play any part in your thesis? Um, Just like the technology behind the weapons? Oh yes, that, that forms a major reason why I pursued this particular topic. Uh, For a long time, I I like to, to think about the, the big sort of security questions to, to life on earth in general. And nuclear weapons are a big part of that. And insofar as the thesis is concerned, what I want to know is what, how did scientists justify the possibility of potentially destroying the world in exchange for national safety from communism in the USSR? How did you decide upon studying specifically the role of scientists in the integration of MAD for your thesis? So... It's quite an interesting topic. You see, 
it sort of starts with Eisenhower. President Eisenhower didn't really trust military members to a great extent. He believed that many of them were out to like secure more funding, secure more influence, and not necessarily doing what was in the best interest of the United States. So instead, President Eisenhower turned to scientists as sort of like the adults in the room to identify those policy methods that would ensure the most likely outcome of defense for the United States in terms of the USSR. Now, as I'll discuss a little later, Eisenhower himself made several questionable policy decisions that went against the advice of the scientists. Nonetheless, it is this idea that scientists are sort of like this unique voice, that they have some sort of unique insight into policy that I decided to focus on them in regards to this thesis. I didn't know that like Eisenhower distrusted like military officials, which I think is a bit ironic because I understand him to be like a military official himself. Was there any like part of like why that was like his reasoning behind like why he chose not to like partake in their opinions or trust their opinions? Certainly. So a major component I look at for my thesis work is primary documents surrounding debates the Eisenhower administration had with military uh, leaders. And uh, an argument that comes up time and time again is that Eisenhower is very concerned with national debt. He believes that national debt and deficits are a real threat to the safety and security of United States citizens. And he believed that military officials in the army in particular were utilizing the arguments in order to accrue more money and resources to themselves. And in that case, sort of spend the United States into oblivion, as it were. To um, follow up on the earlier question about scientists, who are some of the key scientists whose stories you used as evidence for your thesis? And why are their stories important? To give two examples, one scientist I come to look to a lot for my research has been Kistikowski. Uh, George Kistikowski. He was President Eisenhower's lead science advisor, and so he was Eisenhower's main contact for the feasibility of these types of projects. And uh, Kistikowski actually left a diary behind of his time in office serving Eisenhower, and it's been a very valuable resource into identifying these debates between scientists, politicians, and the military as to nuclear policy. The other scientist that I've come to rely on a lot is uh, Ellsberg, Daniel Ellsberg, perhaps more famous for his role in the Pentagon Papers. Ellsberg was a civilian scientist who worked at RAND a for-profit company that was very closely tied to the United States government. 
Ellsberg was responsible for calculating the best places to send nuclear weapons to cause the most destruction. Ellsberg eventually came to believe the United States had taken several potentially dangerous policy methods that really didn't promote U.S. security and eventually grew disillusioned with this role. And that also provides some unique insights into the decision-making processes that happen behind the scenes during the Cold War. I know your thesis talks a little bit about PSYOP, which is the actual um, policy that the U.S. implemented. Um, could you tell us a little bit more about it and what the difference it is between MAD? Certainly. So MAD is sort of the theory of how nuclear relations should be between different nations. But you can't really put a theory into practice without policy measures. And that's what PSYOP was. PSYOP, meaning the single integrated operational plan, was essentially the United States attempt to put MAD into practice. But as my thesis attempts to show that PSYOP really was not an accurate representation of MAD because MAD, the whole point of MAD is to minimize the risks of nuclear warfare occurring. But PSYOP gave lots of wiggle room for politicians and the military to test the boundaries of risks. For example, um, the Air Force was really keen on launching as many nuclear weapons as possible at the USSR. But MAD, you don't need that many nuclear weapons to deter the other side, according to MAD. But that really didn't matter to the Air Force because under PSYOP, the more nuclear weapons they were authorized to deliver to the USSR in, in the event of nuclear war, the more resources they acquired and the more influence they had with people who could distribute that resource, namely the presidency and the executive branch. So here we see where that PSYOP is making nuclear warfare more dangerous than needs to be, not necessarily for any strategic reason, but merely so that decision makers can accrue some personal or institutional benefit. Um, this is a follow-up question, but I know you talk a lot about how a lot of the decision-making processes may have been like influenced by like personal and political benefit. Did you see any of that like manifest itself within like real things that happened? Certainly, I can give one example. So President Kennedy, in his campaign for office, made a big argument about the possibility of a missile gap. The idea that the USSR had acquired a lot more ballistic missiles than the US, and that meant that the US strategic defense was lacking. However, when Kennedy was elected, his scientists informed him that, no, there, there's not really any evidence of a missile gap between the US and the USSR. And furthermore, if we, are, if we pursue the policy 
of closing this mythical missile gap that will likely start an arms race that will be disastrous for deterring nuclear warfare. So Kennedy knew that the missile gap was a myth upon obtaining office, and yet he continued to promote it because to do otherwise would, would be for him to admit a mistake, a political mistake that Republicans would be all too willing to exploit, to cast doubt on Kennedy in his new office. And so he elected to risk the possibility of an arms race and the potential escalation of nuclear war in order to safeguard his political ambitions for the presidency. So I think you've already told us a few of the sources that you're um, using in your thesis, especially the ones that are relevant to the debates that were happening um, with the president and scientists at the time. Um, but are, are there any other sources that you want to kind of highlight that you're um, utilizing in your research and in your thesis? Sure. So I've come to rely a lot on presidential archives that house a lot of the information and scientific reports that came out about the potential uses and dangers of nuclear weapons. Among the archives I've used, the, the Kennedy archive has been very useful as it also contains information about the sorts of casualties that might be expected should a nuclear war arise, including graphs. And some of these things are, are frankly quite scary to look at. It really places the nuclear war in context and illustrates precisely what politicians and military officials were placing on the line whenever they decided to ignore the advice of scientists when it came to minimizing risks of nuclear warfare. So the, the archives have been very useful. Diaries and autobiographies that scientists have left behind have been very useful. And then also there have been various technical papers left behind on the uses of nuclear weapons that appear every so often in the thesis. I have a bit of a follow-up question since um, you mentioned like the like the possible cost of human life that could have occurred if you know um, many of these nuclear weapons had actually been deployed. Like, I mean, this is a bit of like a casual type question. Like, you don't need to give numbers or anything, but how bad would it have been based on your research? Now, that is a very interesting question because you see that these numbers were in and of themselves a sort of political calculation. Decision makers who were the superiors of scientists would set the terms for what kind of casualties should be counted in terms of nuclear warfare. And some scientists argue that the limitations policymakers placed on scientists caused them to underestimate the number of casualties that would result. Nonetheless, you don't really need to underestimate the casualties because it's already pretty bad as it is. Some of the graphs shown indicate that up to, say, 95% of American citizens would have died should nuclear weapons have been used. It, like that's that's like the worst case scenario, but nonetheless a very scary and very real possibility that might have occurred. 
also a welcome reminder that no knowledge is like produced in like a super objective vacuum like even if it's science you know we always think it's so objective but there are all these other factors political or not that affect the results very true and now focusing on your research process uh did COVID 19 pose any problems to your research how did you circumvent those issues to complete your research despite the pandemic Yes, COVID-19 did present some difficulties to my research. Luckily, I, I had already done a lot of research before the pandemic broke out in full. Nonetheless, the big issue that came about with the pandemic was getting access to these archive, archival materials. Um, as a result of various safety and social distancing measures, the archives informed me that they, it would take them much, much longer to get me the, the data I needed and the papers I requested. Luckily, most of the archivists I corresponded with were very nice, very understanding, kept me informed of the process. Uh, but there was also one archive in particular that sort of ghosted me after a little bit. Luckily, I, I didn't really need that archive, but yeah, a, a difficulty that might have been avoided had the pandemic not suddenly reared its head. Kind of continuing on like focusing on the your research in the modern day, do you see any like implications of your research being relevant today or in the future? Very much so. In fact, I'm hoping to end the thesis on a very modern note, you see, I believe in, in 2019, a paper by the Joint Chiefs of Staff on America's nuclear war policies was accidentally posted online. Now, as everyone knows with social media, once something gets on the internet, it never comes off. So while the military deleted the particular post, it still remains available, preserved by online publications. And it's quite scary analyzing this particular document because you see many of the concerns scientists had with nuclear policies back with Eisenhower and Kennedy are still quite common in the policies we have today. And it's scary to think that even given all this time, even with the fall of the USSR, that we have not ex exactly relaxed our policies and aggressive tendencies when it comes to nuclear weapons. Would you say that like MAD itself is still like a policy or has that kind of toned down a little bit? I think MAD has become less relevant to a certain degree. Nonetheless, I do believe it still forms a major part of foreign relations, especially with other nations that hold nuclear weapons. I mean, the whole point is to safeguard against the possibility of attack by other nuclear armed nations, which is why it's scary to think that while these aggressive policies are still in place, the wider public has nonetheless sort of like moved on from those concerns. And 
obviously we now have a lot more to be concerned about global warming, COVID, everything, but MAD is still there and the mistakes people have made when making MAD are still here. And it's important we understand that so that we might fix it. Because uh, ultimately, I think it's said a lot that we, we, meaning humanity in general, survived the Cold War not only through cool leadership, but also through sheer luck. I don't want to test our luck that much more when it comes to nuclear weapons. And then just closing our podcast, um, what's the most interesting thing you've learned um, throughout like the whole research and writing process? And did anything you learned like challenge something that you thought like before you started writing your thesis? I think the most interesting factoid I learned was the degree to which nuclear capabilities are placed in the hands of, of the military. Like we sort of like to imagine that the president being the commander in chief is the person who's solely responsible for nuclear warfare, like the public conceptions of the football briefcase he carries around all the time and such. But as it turns out, the military commanders are quite capable of launching nuclear weapons themselves. This particularly chilling antidote by Ellsberg describes the policy of when communications when Washington DC are unavailable, then commanders are free to send nuclear weapons themselves. But as it turns out, during the early years of Cold War, communications between Washington DC and Hawaii were actually cut off fairly regularly. So it turns out that military commanders in Hawaii could have easily have started a nuclear war if they were crazy enough to. Uh, that's the most interesting bit of information I came across, I think. As for information that's challenged my perspective, I suppose at the start, I was hoping to write a somewhat optimistic piece about how while there is no risk-free approach to nuclear war warfare, nonetheless, the advice of scientists found, found a way to minimize the risks of nuclear warfare. But confronting all this evidence of political and military decision-making individuals ignoring advice for various financial and political incentives, it is a troubling reminder of the inherent corruption powerful positions of office. And I believe that's the theme that appears a lot throughout the essay and the thesis. Thank you, Frederick, for taking the time to speak with us today. We hope that the semester will be a productive one for podcasting and we can feature more members from the Rice History community. We also want to thank our listeners for tuning in today. Don't forget to check out the Rice Historical Review Virtual Edition alongside picking up your hard copy, which is coming soon. In the meantime, check out our other podcasts and short form pieces at www.ricehistoricalreview.org. Thank you for listening, and remember, we further the future by promoting the past.